Well, good morning, and thank you again for the privilege of being able to come and open God's Word with you again this morning. It's always a little nerve-wracking to have your pastor sitting out there listening. (laughs) But we're going to do this anyway. Uh, If there are children out there that qualify, kindergarten through fifth grade, now is the time you would be dismissed to go to Children's Church. Last week we, uh, we spoke a little bit about what it means to be fruitful. We talked about who we are, our character. We talked about what we give, that is contribute, and not, not just money. We're talking about a lot of other things than just that. We talked about our conduct, what we do. And we talked about what we communicate, that is what we say. We're going to continue with that theme a little bit today. And I'm going to invite you, if you're so inclined, to turn in your Bibles or your devices, whatever you have with you, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. And this morning, um, I want us to look at what might be uh, one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture. Read with me, if you will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. For hundreds of years, people all over the world who believe little of what the Bible says have studied it, they've taught it, they've written books about it. But according to Jesus, it takes more than just religious activity, that is, the works we talked about last week. Even if it's done in his name, it takes more than that to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it requires that you actually No, God. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, What People Really Believe About Everything, James Patterson and Peter Kim found that in every region of our country, about 90% of the people say they believe in God. And you remember last week I told you at least 87% expect to one day go to heaven. But when these authors ask how people made up their minds on issues of right and wrong, they found that less than 15% of the people would turn to God or religion to help them decide moral issues. Religious belief plays virtually no role in shaping the opinions of most people regarding important public policies. Way over half of our people today don't go to church, and most who do don't know where their church stands on important issues. Only one out of five will approach a pastor on an issue that they're confronted with. And only one out of ten believes in all ten commandments, thinking of them more as ten suggestions. Patterson and Kim concluded that there is absolutely no moral consensus at all. In other words, people believe there is a God, but he has no relevance to their everyday lives. Some like to speak of a great revival sweeping America today, such as the 
baptism that went on at uh, Auburn University a week or two ago. While there may be great interest in spiritual things, I think it may be a little premature to label it a true revival at this point. It may not surprise you to know that things were not too different in Jesus' day. Oh, people were religious, but not so much that it affected their lives all that much. Then Jesus came along telling people they had to make a decision. Either God was going to rule their lives, or they would do it themselves. Those were the only options he gave. Follow the narrow path that leads to life, or the wide path that leads to destruction. Produce, as we talked about last week, good fruit or bad fruit. Needless to say, it wasn't a very popular message of the day. It still isn't today. People don't mind being a little religious as long as it doesn't affect their life. They'll obey God if it's convenient, but they'll rebel when they feel like indulging themselves. And Jesus said, that won't work. If we're going to be faithful to God's word, we can only echo it. We can't recreate it. It brings us to our big idea of the day. It takes true faith to be fruitful. We can't reshape scripture to make it easier to swallow for our culture. We have to simply read it and obey what it says. The prophets of old didn't fear what others thought. They simply took a stand for the truth. That's what we have to do. In today's cultural atmosphere of tolerance, meaning everything goes, this sounds maybe a little too strong or too divisive. But Jesus didn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Either we follow God or we reject him. Look at our passage again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, we've not, have we not prophesied in your name? We've cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As I look at those words, I can't help but wonder if Jesus were candidating for a job in a church today, would he be called? <laughs> I have to say, probably not by many. Sadly. If we're to follow his words, this is a hard truth that we need to consider carefully. Entering the kingdom of heaven. It takes more than profession of faith. See, in today's climate of biblical illiteracy, it's not difficult for some to spew a lot of impressive-sounding words. But words alone are not enough to get us into the kingdom of God. We all know someone who knows all the Christianese, all the religious jargon, all the words of every hymn in the book. But something is still missing. They know the words, but the words don't seem to have had an impact in their life. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, Jesus' brother had something to say about that kind of person. 
And as I read this, you'll hear the word works. Try thinking of it as the word actions. See if that helps understand a little bit. What does it profit, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? <laughs> you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Here, James is speaking of what people say about their faith versus living out their faith. You can use all kinds of holy-sounding words, but how the life is lived is the test of the reality of their belief. A faith that does not demonstrate a genuinely changed life is not a real faith. As James says, it's dead. James makes clear a little later in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, just as an aside here, it seems that anytime this passage comes up, it's accompanied by a debate about salvation by faith or by works or by faith plus works. And we're not going to take enough time here to delve into the depths of that debate today, but I don't want you to be confused. And I think you can look back on a, a message from Pastor Josh just a few weeks ago uh, about justification through faith. James is not saying here that works can or will save you. The real question here, though, is what kind of faith is saving faith? James, James' question is rhetorical. And the obvious answer is that faith without works is not saving faith. The New Testament does not teach justification by profession of faith or the claim to faith. It teaches justification by the possession of true faith, which is itself a gracious gift from God. When Luther and the Reformers insisted on the formula justification by faith alone, they were insisting that justification rested solely on the merits of Christ alone. The word alone does not mean faith exists alone without any resulting obedience. Luther insisted that saving faith is a living faith. Dead faith does not mean a faith that has died, but a faith that never had true life in it to begin with. But back to today's message. <laughs> a message that true saving faith will produce a visibly changed life that is, fruit, is a hard one for today's generation to hear. We've merged the principles of Christian faith in various aspects of our lives today, and we've found convenient places to put things so that God doesn't necessarily bother us too much. Consequently, we have 
folks that live for themselves all week and then shift into faith mode for Sunday. You become comfortable with a, just a little bit of religion. But Jesus says we cannot live that way. Claiming to be a Christian means nothing. Being born again means a changed life, not just a changed vocabulary. If you think about it, if a basic tenet of Christianity is that God inserts himself, his divine nature, into us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how can we not be changed? We've jumped then from the wide path onto the narrow path, and we're on a whole new life track. Anyone who says, I became a Christian years ago, and I still do the same things I did before, uh, I still think the way I did before, I still live the way I did before, well, if that's true, that person needs to examine himself to see if, in fact, he's really in the faith. Where's the changed life? James, even Jesus, would not accept the idea that a profession of faith alone, just saying you have it, is enough. Faith is significant when it's evidenced by change in us. So entering the kingdom requires more than profession. Secondly, entering the kingdom of heaven takes more than production of works. Jesus goes on and says that at the end of their lives, there will be those who want to brag about all they've done. Lord, Lord, look at all the things I did. Look at all my religious activity. I prophesied. I cast out demons. I even did some wonders. Doesn't that prove my sincerity? And this is where the passage becomes scary because Jesus tells us we can claim to be a Christian we can be involved in Christian activities, even do some things that would impress people and still not know what it means to trust Christ. As I said, you have to know God. Spend some time with him. His list of activities here is worth looking at. He says you can expound the word of God and still be lost. Again, scary. That means there will be some preachers in heaven. Just because they can string together some great phrases and include scripture references doesn't mean they're saved. I can just imagine a scene where some guys who are great orators or flashy TV guys are arguing on Judgment Day. Don't you remember all those great sermons I preached? How about all those multitudes I reached through TV and radio? And Jesus will turn away poor soul never came to the cross for forgiveness. He thought teaching others about God was having fellowship with God. But look what the Lord himself says in Luke chapter 13, verses 25 to 27. If you're, if you're a, a, a good page turner, flip over there. Luke 13, 25 to 27. It says, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? And then you begin to say, well, we ate 
and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Preaching will not get me into heaven, not me or anyone else. It doesn't matter how big or how small my church or my audience is, I cannot preach my way out of eternal hell. What I mean is my place in heaven is not based on what I do or what my title is or how many good works I've produced. My place in heaven is based on the forgiveness of my sins by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and my acceptance of that through faith. Secondly, Jesus says you can exercise demons and still be lost. This verse often causes people to ask, how could they cast out demons if they weren't Christians? Well, according to the Lord, not everyone who does this is saved. There were some who tried to imitate the power that they'd seen the Lord and some of his followers exercise in Acts 19, 13 to 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. <laughs> that, that should have told him something right there. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man whom the evil spirit was, in whom this evil spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It's really not uncommon to hear of people that are casting out demons out of just about anything these days. We hear all kinds of things about cults and people approximating spiritual power and claiming to have authority over demons. But here, Jesus emphatically states that you can exercise demons and still be lost. And thirdly, Jesus says you can evidence great power and still be lost. Now, many pastors receive questions about this author or evangelist or that TV preacher. And if I happen to cast doubt on their authenticity, the return question is always, but pastor, haven't you seen him on TV? He heals people in wheelchairs. He, he slays them in the spirit. Doesn't that prove God's power? No. I have to admit, there are a few of these guys I can actually ever watch on TV. But then it's, it's kind of rare for me to ever watch TV when I'm looking for truth about anything, but especially about God. There are two powers, though, that produce wonders. And Satan can produce false signs and wonders. Look at Mark 13. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, even the fool, those who actually know Christ. That same warning is found in Matthew 24, 24. And then again in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, the Apostle Paul says there, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders 
and with all unrighteous deception. John warns us in 1 John 4, 1. says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to test these wonder workers to see if they truly are of God. We can't judge a man's heart by the size of the crowd or by the size of the wonder. It's just too easy, these days especially, to be deceived. (laughs) And now with artificial intelligence coming at us, it can create things that really do look real and have absolutely no foundation in reality. I don't doubt that there will be a number of people wanting to pound on the doors of heaven one day explaining to Jesus that they stirred huge crowds with their oratory. Or they cast demons out of many or showed great power in the wonders that they perform, but it won't matter to Jesus. He'll not be moved by their production. He'll simply look to see if their names are written in the book of life. And unless they have, through faith, put their trust in Jesus and asked for forgiveness for their sins and taken him as their Lord and Savior, their name will not appear there. Satan wants us to believe that We can do it ourselves. We can save ourselves by stacking up the good works, hoping that we will somehow qualify to spend eternity with God. But there won't be any huge scale that will balance good works or bad works. That way we'd all lose out. He doesn't grade on the curve. He grades on the cross. He demands holiness. And the only way to be holy is to appropriate the holiness of Jesus Christ. It's not our production or power that will open heaven's gates to us. We've discussed now that entering the kingdom of heaven takes more than profession of faith, takes more than production of works. But as I wrap this up, We're going to talk about entering the kingdom and how it takes more than performance of religiosity. Did I make up that word? No. (laughs) It actually is in the dictionary. I have grown up in my faith with an understanding that these uh, truths, profession, production, and performance, were all inadequate to get me to heaven. So I was surprised to see that somehow this was not always known by some of the great men of our faith. It's said that John Wesley, the great founder of the Methodist Church, was a clergyman and missionary who worked with incredible might. He memorized most of the Greek New Testament. His devotional life was very disciplined. He was willing to sleep on the ground in taking the gospel to our Native Americans, all the time hoping it would make him acceptable to God. And one day he trusted Christ for his salvation and he realized up to that point everything had counted for nothing. They say that's when he began his real ministry. Martin Luther, leader of the Protestant Reformation and founder of the Lutheran Church, is said to have been perhaps one of the most precise religious people you'd ever meet. 
The ascetic monk, living in an Augustinian monastery, was determined to live a holy, self-denying lifestyle. He fasted for days. He prayed and engaged in vigils constantly. He almost froze to death when he cast off his blankets, thinking that would somehow merit God's grace. But in his own words, he said this, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that if I may say so myself, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> Luther himself would admit that he didn't truly become a Christian until he studied the book of Romans and came to understand the truth of justification by faith. <laughs> Folks, don't be fooled. Don't think you're doing just fine spiritually if you have never made peace with God. The only way to do that and get into heaven is to put your trust, your faith, in Jesus Christ. Not by doing works or anything. Once we die, we don't get to rethink our decision. Put our trust in him or continue to trust ourselves. Those are really our options. Our works or our words. <laughs> don't be fooled. Eternity is a long, long time. It takes more than profession of faith. It takes more than production of works. It takes more than performance of religious activity. It takes trusting Jesus. So I challenge you. Do you trust him today? Let's pray. Lord, people have asked forever, what must I do to get into heaven? And you've made it so clear in your word. Trust in you, not in our own power, not in works. And obey. Make a decision. Let you transform our lives. Lord, I pray that every person hearing my voice today has, or will even now, trusted Jesus Christ. Lord, I recognize I am a sinner. Change my heart, transform my life, redirect my eternal destination. I trust you for this. Amen.